Hello, everyone, and welcome to Charlie and Jake's Hot Takes, episode number seven. And uh, Jake and me, we were so disappointed. Well, not disappointed, but definitely sad at the end of the Last Dance documentary. What a what a great time we had watching it, as did most of the basketball fans throughout the world. It was so well done and so enjoyable. But uh, a comment that uh, arose from the Last Dance came from uh, Channing Fry and has really sparked debate throughout the uh, basketball Twitter sphere and uh, other social media. So just to hear what Channing was saying. So first he goes into um, talking about how MJ wasn't his guy, which obviously you're entitled to your opinion. Some people feel that, especially Channing Fry, a guy who played and won championships with LeBron James. But he had one part of his quote that really, really rubbed people the wrong way, and that was this. He, he only had really one job, and that was just to score. And he did that at an amazing, amazing rate. But I don't feel like his way of winning then would translate to what it is now. Guys would not want to play with him. So did MJ just score? Well, that's, the, that's why this quote's so interesting. Because when you look at MJ, I think his job was to score. And I think he was, from this documentary and from watching him play, he was the best scorer ever, and all he really had to do was score. He had Pippen and Rodman and Kerr and guys like that who could pass and defend and rebound, and he just had to get buckets, which I think guys like LeBron have to do more, and I think that that will always be a knock on him. But he won, and he won a lot. So can we really criticize him for doing his job? That was his part of the system, and he was the guy that got them those championships. You saw the success they had when he wasn't there. They didn't get those championships. He was the guy that got them over the hump with his scoring. Well, I mean, first of all, to discount MJ saying he's just a scorer to me is absurd. We're forgetting that he also was one of the best defenders of his era. Nine defensive, nine all defensive teams. He won a defensive player of the year. Like, it's not like he was only – say he was only scoring his – it's forgetting a major part of his game, which was his defense. He was really feared on the defensive yeah. end. And his toughness on defense is what people really liked about him. They loved that he would be the guy who was guarding the other team's best player. He would get the stop, come down, and then make the play at the end, make the play at the end of the game, like he did in uh, game six in 98 against yeah. Utah. That's, some, that's what really resonates with fans about Michael Jordan. But even, even to say he didn't pass, listen, LeBron is – one of the best passers that I've ever seen in terms of vision, in terms of getting everybody involved. He's made a lot of players much better than they are with his passing. And MJ wasn't a pure passer by no means. He still dished out five a game throughout his career. Yeah, but most people playing those yeah. minutes would, though. You can't call him a great passer, though, because he was playing 40 minutes a game get, facing double teams. I would hope he would get a few assists a night. No, that's definitely fair. I mean – he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a passer. It wasn't his M.O. to pass the ball. But the triangle, and obviously we have to credit Phil Jackson for this, it made him pass the ball a little bit. It made him share the wealth a little bit. Absolutely. And I just don't think – saying I think Channing Fry made an honest mistake here. I mean, I think he just kind of over – he got into it a little bit. He was talking about something that yeah. obviously he believes in a lot, and he kind of slipped up, and he's been getting a lot of heat yeah. for it. But just that part of the statement yeah. was pretty – just saying he was yeah. a scorer was kind yeah. of off for me. I do, I do agree with you what you're saying there, but I think that I kind of see what he's saying and he took it to a, an extreme with his statement. But I still think that it's also very easy to play defense 
when the guys he had with him. He did have Dennis Rodman. He did have Scottie Pippen, who were great defenders. So I think when you're in a system full of great defenders, it's easy to be a great defender when you got guys who have your back. He was a perimeter defender, and he had great rim protectors. So that's always a good help. You could be more aggressive when you know you have those guys backing you. Yeah, and that's that's definitely um, reflected through his steal totals throughout the years. You know, yeah. he averaged two steals a bunch of times. He yeah. had one year where he averaged three point two, which is really that's incredible for steals per game. Yeah. But also another issue I have with that when you're saying he's just he was just scoring and he was always the only focal point. So we take into account the fact that obviously it was a different era of basketball. We don't have to get into the differences between yeah. now and then because that would just be a a whole episode in itself. Yeah. But but other guys on these MJ teams scored the ball. Scottie Pippen was a high teens, low twenties scorer, and then they always had a third guy. Horace Grant would average fifteen a game. Ku Coach would average fifteen a game. Yeah. BJ Armstrong would average fifteen a game. So it wasn't like in the sense of where it was MJ, then it was Pippen, then it was nobody else. And just to put this out there. Not to be too crazy, but the third scorer on most of MJ's team is scoring a, a, a couple of points more than Kyle Kuzma is right now for the Lakers. Yeah. Just, just not to spark, not to, not to discredit LeBron or anything, but I just yeah. thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, I think, though, now that we've got that, I think we need to really talk about the interesting part of the quote, and I don't think he's the only one that's talking about this, as when he said players today wouldn't want to play with MJ. And I think the documentary really got into that a lot as the type of person and type of teammate he was. So do you think that if you were a player or do you think players would want to play with him today or even if players want to play with him back then? Well, so here's my take on it. I, I mean, I look at – you watch the show, you see the things about the practices, which was honestly for me, I don't know about you, probably one of my favorite parts because, you know, NBA and pro practices just throughout leagues, you don't see that much of them. You don't really see – a ton of especially for championship teams and seeing that was really cool but you know you saw that MJ he was he was was tough you know you weren't gonna make mistakes and if you made mistakes he was gonna chew you out and he was really gonna go after you and I think for me it's like this so obviously you ask any player right now sitting on their couch after watching the MJ documentary knowing that MJ won six championships knowing that he's arguably the GOAT Every player is going to, besides some guys who really like to take, you know, besides more of the opinionated guys, most guys in the league would go with the simpler and say, of course I'd want to play with Michael Jordan. He's the best player of all time. I could learn so much and I could win some championships. But that's obviously the thing that you almost have to say because if you say, oh, I didn't want to play with him because he's too competitive, that makes you look soft. That makes you look like you don't want to win. But if it was actually a situation where MJ was playing now and he was the same exact person and the same exact player and the same exact personality, I don't know how he would be received. Well, I think I agree with you. And I think it really is hard to have that conversation in hindsight as he won six championships and has he was so successful. So I think the debate becomes, would you want to play with someone like that if they weren't as successful, if he wasn't winning year in and year out? And I'm going to take the side of yes. Because I just think I would love to be with someone if I'm playing at that level and I want to win. I want someone who's as competitive as I am. And if you're at that level, I mean, someone who just pushes you and pushes you. He wasn't doing it. He didn't enjoy bullying those guys. It wasn't like it was his hobby. 
but he was trying to get them ready to win. He wanted to win, and he needed, knew he needed those guys around him to win, and he was willing to do that at all costs. So I think he did what he had to do. And if he crossed the line sometimes, so be it. That's the price of being a champion. But from, from my perspective as a player, I mean, I have a hard time envisioning myself yeah. as an NBA player for some obvious reasons. But um, I just think it's hard because – a lot of the stuff he did, it's just like a cultural thing. Like we don't do that anymore. Like for what I, what I'd say, it's similar. Like similar to what I what I have is I just think you think about Kobe Bryant, who I'd say is the most similar to Michael Jordan in terms of being the teammate, being the scorer. They have very similar games. Yeah, on and um, off the court. On and off the court. And you know, towards the end of Kobe's career, once the skills were kind of diminishing. Once Kobe Bryant wasn't the elite Kobe Bryant, guys, they made a couple of runs at, like, big-time free agents towards the end of his career, and it wasn't as successful. And I think that's because you kind of saw the tide changing from where it was like you had the star on the team who was uh, the guy and everybody was supposed to just listen to them and it was their way or the highway and you were going to accept a little bit of, uh, a little bit of um, abuse. Obviously, it wasn't – Abuse, but you know what I'm you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. And I just think I don't think those things fly anymore. Like who's like there's nobody really like that in today's NBA. But I see what you're saying, but there's no one really like Michael in today's NBA the same way that there's no one who would win all those championships. No one's dominated like Michael did over the course of the nineties. So I mean like yeah, I see what you're saying, how we don't have any personalities like that, but I think he's kind of once in a lifetime type of guy. You don't see too Michael Jordan. So, I mean, like, it's really – it's not like people could be like him and they're not. They're just not. Very few guys are wired that way. And Kobe mm-hmm. was made that way too. So, we really did get a special look. I kind of got to see MJ reincarnated with Kobe. And I still don't even know if Kobe kind of was fully what MJ was in the competitive nature. But I don't think guys – like, I, I just don't think guys loved playing with Kobe. I mean, Kobe is one of the – his game was amazing. We uh, He's one of my favorite players ever. But I just think we saw that not because Kobe was so – not because he was so different from MJ, but just because that almost behavior of, like, being the alpha male type of guy on the practice court, doing those things, it's kind of just gotten out of – I don't know. I think I think we should not talk about the Shaq years as that was a pro, uh, controversy in its own as yeah. that was kind of those two guys. But I think in the latter years of Kobe Bryant, the post-Shaquille O'Neal years when they won those championships, I think they're not going to find anybody who's come out and said, I didn't like playing with Kobe Bryant. I don't think you're going to find people who said that. I think a lot of people said that about the media came out and said that about Russell Westbrook. Because he was another guy who Michael's compared to himself in that competitive nature. And the media loves to say that we people don't like playing with him. He's too competitive. He's too much of a ball hog. And you've never heard one of his teammates come out and say, I don't like him, which is the same with Kobe Bryant. Yeah, and by no means am I trying to say anything against Kobe or Michael Jordan. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. They won five and six championships. Obviously, what they did worked. But it's more for me just that, like, almost times have changed and some behaviors that – flew in the early 2000s and the 90s doesn't really work anymore. Like, I see what you're example. Uh, and I think one thing, though, that made both of those guys, their things work so well, and it's very funny that they actually have this exact similarity, was the guy behind all of it and Phil Jackson. And I think he kind of really knew how to run a team. I think yeah. the documentary portrayed him very well. It was a really good book for him. 
after the turmoil he's had in the past five years with the Knicks. I think this was a really good thing for him. And I think that he was really good at managing Michael. And we don't really know the exact details of how he managed Kobe, but you'd have to think it was along the same lines as what he did with Michael. So I think that if you have a guy like Phil Jackson, that really does change all the tape, change the circumstances of the situation. Yeah, and I think overall, at the end of the day, most players would want to play with Michael Jordan. But I think if Michael Jordan told uh, the flight attendants not to feed a teammate like they did to uh, Horace Grant, we'd have a little bit of objection. Yeah. But, um, that was uh, that. was that. Now I want to get into uh, some more NBA. We talked a little uh, some 90s, early 2000s. Now I want to talk about the uh, Clippers and the Lakers. Obviously, last week we went into – who's the biggest challenger to the two LA teams. But the reason we had to do that is because prevailing wisdom around the league is that we will see a Western conference finals between the LA teams and that the uh, road to the championship in the West goes through Los Angeles and the Staples center. Yeah. So I agree there. I think that I said this last week, I think that the final two teams in the West will be the two teams in LA. I think we're going to see six or seven games all played at the Staples Center. I think they'll definitely be an exciting series. And I think that the Lakers are the team that will prevail. But I think it's really, really interesting matchup. Because if you look at it on paper, I think the Clippers have the better team. I think they're deeper. They've got great guys off the bench. They have really good perimeter defenders in Kawhi, Beverly, and Jordan. But I just think that LeBron's going to overpower them. And I think that the two best players on the court are going to be Lakers. So I just really think that would be an interesting series. So what do you think about that? You know, I think this is what we've run into a couple of times. I think that as much as I think LeBron will have an incredible series, I just, I love this Clippers team for so many reasons. And if I could just, you know, first just, Kawhi, I know you say the two best players on the floor would be Lakers. I vehemently disagree with that. I think in a playoff series, I'm taking Kawhi Leonard over Anthony Davis any day of the week because I know. Yes, yeah. I, I don't know. I think it's close. I think they're different players, but I could definitely not going to kill you over that one. Mm-hmm. And you just had these this Kawhi Paul George duo that obviously the load management. We know that we haven't seen them a ton on the court together. The numbers when they've been together has been really exceptional. The team's been great when they play together. And you see Kawhi and Paul George, both 20-plus point scorers, both great defenders, both shoot the ball well. A lot of the same things with AD and LeBron, you know, just two incredible players. So I think that obviously the Stars are going to dictate some of this series. But when I think what I think about this is we have two teams that are so similar in terms of talent. I mean, these are both – really 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 good teams so I think it's going to come down to other things and for me it's just that depth that the Clippers have I mean all around if I could just talk about some guys for a second I mean you look at Montrez Harrell and uh, Lou Williams I think they should be co six yeah. of the year both giving you 18 yeah. a game then you got yeah, they're then, playing you got, great. then you got your buyout guys one guy who's starting is Marcus Morris who was uh, putting up numbers for the Knicks before that. He's a good defender. He can get you a bucket. You have Reggie Jackson from the Pistons, who's a good secondary ball handler. Yeah, he's really well. He's you playing well. You have Pat Beverly, obviously. We know he's he's the pain in the side of every NBA star, and he uh, will annoy and uh, pester 
LeBron James and the rest of the Lakers throughout the series. And I just love the grit and toughness of the Clippers to get them through what's going to be a really tough played series. And I, I hear you completely, and I really do love the makeup of the Clippers. But the one thing that I think – there's two things I think that favor the Lakers. The obvious one being the King. They got LeBron, and LeBron's LeBron. But I think the bigger thing, and something that I know you, we don't want to talk about the last dance too much, but they talked about it in the last dance that the Bulls had over the Pacers, is they kind of have more guys who have championship and playoff experience. And I think the Lakers are an older team, more experienced team, and they have guys like Dwight Howard, who's played in the NBA Finals, Javon McGee, who's played in the NBA Finals, LeBron, obviously, Rajon Rondo, Avery Bradley's played at a high level in Boston. So they have a lot of guys who have went deep into playoff series that I just don't know if the Clippers have other than Kawhi. And I don't know how much of a leader he really can be to those other guys. Well, for me, it's this. You know, I do think that's a good point that you brought up, that the Lakers have those guys who have been there, done that, you know. Obviously, Dwight Howard led a team to the finals in his heyday. JaVale McGee has a experience on that Warriors team. And obviously, LeBron is LeBron. But I think the when we're talking about secondary players, obviously, the experience side goes to the Lakers. But it's just, I don't think they're they're comparable in terms of the actual guys who are on the court. Well, I agree with you there. Well, I think if we're talking about who has the better secondary squad, I think that it's not really a debate. I think you have to look at the Clippers, but I think the two stars do the two stars. It really is a much big advantage to the Lakers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, where for me it's big, what do we get out of Paul George? Because if we get what Paul George was doing in the middle of last year when he was in Lighting the third guy in the MVP race, which I think is certainly possible – then it's, it's very much closer between the two groups of stars. We know what Kawhi Leonard is. We know what LeBron is. I'm very interested to see AD and Paul George because those Absolutely. guys, AD is going to, I mean, I'll admit it, even though it hurts my side, AD should average 35 points a game this series. They don't really have a guy to combat him inside. It's going to be a tough job for them. But yeah. then for Paul George, I don't know who I trust to guard him, I don't know who who's going to guard him. I don't know who's going to guard Kawhi. They're going to have for the Lakers. They're going to have they have some great defenders, but I also think that these guys on on the Clippers, when you have, they're going to roll out a death lineup of Montrez Harrell, Lou Williams, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and then maybe like Marcus Morris. Those yeah, but, are five guys who can score the ball really well. But Anthony Davis is a great defender. Avery Bradley's a great perimeter defender. I know he's getting up there, but he still can play well. And I mean, I think in a playoff series, we've shown that LeBron can defend. So I think they definitely have defenders, obviously not to the Clippers caliber. And they don't know if they have scores like the Clippers have, but I think that they still have guys who could play. And I think that Anthony Davis really does pose that huge mismatch for them in this series. Yeah. And while the AD mismatch is definitely a thing, I mean, I'll concede it. I just think that you look at it from this perspective of we look at the Lakers when LeBron's not on the floor and they're just not super inspiring in terms of when AD is just on the floor, they're not as good of a team. I understand it's not going to be a ton of time that LeBron's not on the floor. He's going to get a ton of minutes. But where I like the Clippers is when they've been mis mishmashing this whole year. You know, you had Paul George who started the year out and then Kawhi Leonard was missing games for load manager and then Paul George was missing games for load management. They are more of an adaptable team. They've done different things throughout the year. And yes, they don't have the record that the Lakers have, but in terms of experience of just like 
weathering games where you might not have your two stars. The guys on the Clippers have had to step up more than I think the guys on the Lakers have had. Well, I think one thing that's very interesting that when you talk about load management, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the situation we're in now, and it really does look like that we're heading towards the NBA resuming in the coming weeks or months, hopefully, with the comments made by LeBron James and Chris Paul. So it looks like we will get some sort of NBA season out of this year, and we will crown a champion, which I know we both really hope. And I think that the fact that this team hasn't played together as much as the Lakers have is a big thing that could hurt them if we get into the playoffs in the coming weeks. Like, if, you, if you're playing together for the first time, your whole death lineup in the first round of the playoffs, that's really not great for you. Well, I trust the Clippers enough where I'm not worried about those first-round matchups. You know what I'm saying? I think that'll be the time that they have the um, that they have the tune-up, if you will. And I mean, yes, it hurts them, but everybody's gonna be rusty. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody, everybody's gonna come out of this, and I think they're looking at doing some sort of training camp. So hopefully, that'll get everybody on the right page, just in terms of just for the sake of good basketball and stuff that's entertaining and not too uh, rusty. But I think if for every single team, it's going to be an adjust, adjustment. So I think that that might actually be something that helps the Clippers because now you know that you're kind of playing on the even playing field. And just to double down on that, I know that we're – you could – I think before this uh, – the uh, pandemic-caused break, suspension in the season, you had to wonder, would Kawhi Leonard have to take off games in the final, in the, in the, in the playoffs? And I think now that – They've had time. They've really gotten their legs under them. This is like a second off season. I think you'll see both Kawhi and Paul George really well energized and ready for a run. Well, I think I think we're going to see everyone on both teams well energized, and it really should be an exciting series. Yeah, yeah, and it's just going to be. It'll be great. I think that. I mean, not that I wouldn't be interested in seeing another team beat one of those teams because that would require a Herculean performance. But I think deep down, I definitely would love to see L.A. versus L.A., seven games in the same stadium, two fan bases, two, two teams that have uh, obviously kind of risen from the dust and are now ready to try and get that, uh, get that championship. So um, to continue on the Western Conference, one team who we will not see in the playoffs this year is the Golden State Warriors. But um, you have to wonder, are they staying golden? You know, after that incredible run we had this season, but the Warriors look well-stocked to resume as a power in the West. And I want to hear what you think about that, Jake. I love them. I, I love the Warriors. They really are my dark horse 2021 NBA champion. I think they have the makings of a really, really good team. I think they have the Splash Brothers coming off. They're going to be coming back healthy, which is, of course, a great thing for them. And then you look at the, like the secondary piece of the team. I think Draymond Green still can be the guy that he was when they won those championships. I don't think he's great without Stephen Clay, but he's definitely a good guy who could give you 10-7-7 seven, and seven and play great defense in the playoffs. Then Andrew Wiggins is another great scorer. And then the thing that really sets them apart and why I really, really like them is those two lottery picks they have. They have their own lottery pick, which is looking like it's going to be number one. And then I believe they have Minnesota's pick, which they got for the D'Angelo Russell trade. So that was, it's a very promising draft class. I think they're going to secure James Wiseman and another great guy, maybe even Obi Toppin, guys who prove that they're going to be got great guys at the next level. But what I think they should do, and which will help them win a ring, is I think they should move those two picks 
and secure a center. Maybe Rudy Gobert, who I talked about last week, and another interesting guy is Joel Embiid, as they've talked about maybe splitting up that duo. So just something to think about. Yeah, and for me, for the Warriors, you, you look at there, – there are things that I love. I mean, Steph Curry is still Steph. You know, he was averaging 28 a game last year and obviously had the injury last year uh, – this year. And I think he was already back from it, so that's a really good sign for them that they won't have to be working one other player back from injury. And then you have Clay, who's coming off the torn ACL. We don't really know where that's at. I think he'll be back by next season from what we've been hearing, although it's been kind of sparse news because it's just a long recovery process. But the thing is, you're going to – and then you have have Draymond, who I've never been the biggest Draymond Green fan. I think think what he did in 2015-16 and 16-17 – I, that those were like that was prime Draymond to me, where he was he could score a bucket really for you. He was probably the best defender in basketball, if not one of the second or third bests. He he was a great facilitator, which he still does well. I think that the Draymond Green experience is going to continue to go down on a slope, just from what I've seen. I still think he's a great piece for them to have, and for this team with all those scores, this is the perfect team for him because he can still assist a lot he can still rack up the assists and he plays good defense and that's really all you need to do when you have these stars but I don't think he's the same guy and then Wiggins that's the wild card and I really want to get into Andrew Wiggins what you think of his fit on this team well I like him I think he's a great secondary scorer on a team who's trying to win a championship I mean you know Steph and Clay are going to each give you 20-25 plus especially in the playoffs they're both guys who get you buckets and I think I love Andrew Wiggins. I always have. I know he got overpaid in that contract, and he's taken on a lot of hate. But I always think he's been a guy who could perform. I mean, he's always been averaging 15-plus points a game in Minnesota. So I just think he's taken a lot of hate, and that's been unwarranted. I think that that contract really did kill him, and him being all the hype and comparisons he got to Kobe Bryant didn't really help him. But I've always been a big Andrew Wiggins fan, and I thought that was a great pickup for Golden State as they move towards trying to win another championship. Yeah, and I mean, you look at it from this perspective. What did they lose? I mean, D'Angelo Russell's a great player, don't get me wrong, but he would never have fit when Clay Thompson returned. Of course, yeah. You couldn't run. It just wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't work, yeah. So, for Wiggins, what I like about the fit here is that, in Golden State, is that he doesn't have to be the guy, you know? He was having a, he was having probably his best year since – his second year or his third year since like the pre Jimmy Butler, Minnesota days when he yeah. was, that's when he was really crowned the next elite scorer in the league. And obviously that's not going to happen. He's not the next elite scorer, but he's a guy who at his baseline, I think is a 17, 16, 18 point. Per yeah, game absolutely. In that offense where he's going to be getting a lot of open looks with a lot of attention going to the splash brothers. I think he could be really successful And then I also kind of disagree with what you said. I know we're talking to Wiggins, but I also disagree with what you said about Green, as I think Draymond Green's still a young guy who could be like he was in those early Golden State days. I mean, this team was really – I know they had Kevin Durant, but they actually really didn't have Kevin Durant. I think if Klay Thompson stays healthy, they would have won those finals last year, and they would have been four titles in five years. So I really think that the Warriors are – very poised for a championship, and they're they're going to be back there. But for the Draymond thing, I mean, statistically, he's been declining ever since the seventy three and nine year. I mean, I mean, 
I know that the intangibles are there, and for a guy like Draymond Green, you can't just look at stats. And that's why I'm still saying he's a great player for them. But to say he's not – I don't think you get the same Draymond Green anymore. He's a different but, player. But we don't know that because also Kevin Durant was there who plays a similar position to what he plays. So that's obviously taking a lot of touches away from him. And now that that's going to be gone, I think him and Wiggins are kind of going to have to assume that role a little bit. He's going to be trusted with more shots as you're losing a 30-point score in Durant. So I think that it's really unfair to – judge Draymond Green about what happened when Kevin Durant was there and we have to look at what he was like before Kevin Durant and he was a great player he was an all-star back then but if we're gonna look at what he was before Kevin Durant can we look at what he was post Kevin Durant this year and I understand that was a terrible situation but hear me out hear me out hear me out if you look at what the only thing I'll look at is is scoring and points because you're saying he's gonna have more of a scoring role this was his year to actually play some offense, and he shot 37 or 38% from the field. He was dreadful. He can't shoot the ball. He's not a good offensive player. I'm not gonna, you're not going to hear me say that, but can, I, can he be a guy who could get a bucket when he needs to, and can he be a great passer and a great rebounder when Stephen Clare in the lineup? Absolutely. Yes, I think we agree on that. But I just think, I think, you're gonna, I think everybody's going to see that his skills will, are going to diminish a little bit, but he's still going to be a great person for them to have. Because when you have those guys like Draymond with Clay and Curry, they're both more quiet guys. Draymond's the heart and soul of the Golden State Warriors mm-hmm. franchise, you know? He's the glue. You need a great glue guy, and he'll continue to be a really great glue guy. Uh-huh. And I think we kind of jumped over, though, if we're talking Golden State. The thing that I really – I think about this team a lot. I find them very interesting with all the picks they have and the young players. So I think that – they have some good management, Bob Myers. So maybe that they're going to think about making a trade with those two lottery picks that they have. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's been a lot of rumors with Giannis. And I think Joel Embiid I talked about and Rudy Gobert we talked about last week. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see one of those guys come in there. Maybe something along those two lottery picks, Wiggins, one of those young stars. I know Eric Paschal's had a great year. Something along the past package like that for one of those big men which is the one thing that their game kind of lacks. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, for me, I I think getting Embiid would obviously – I mean, if you have a chance to acquire Joel Embiid and it's not going to break the bank, go for it because that that, that would make them, to me, the championship favorites. I mean, you already have Clay and Steph. You have Andrew Wiggins. You have Draymond. And then you add in, in my opinion, the best or second-best center in the league, depending on how you feel about Nikola Jokic. But I, that's obviously – I mean, it, it would, I think it would take a lot. And I think just in general for Philadelphia, they're more likely to get rid of Ben Simmons than Joel. So I think that's more of a pipe dream, you know. Like obviously yeah, but world. I know we don't want to get into the 76ers right now and we're talking about the Warriors, but I think that you could get a lot more for Joel Embiid than you can for Ben Simmons. And when Embiid was out and Simmons was just in the line, if they were playing really, really well – and I think that a guy like Simmons will never reach his full potential with Joel Embiid in the lineup. He's a very similar player to LeBron. And he doesn't – he can't have someone clogging the lane like Embiid. That's why they, the Rockets moved Clint Capello so that they could clear up the lane for Westbrook and Harden. When you have a guy who wants to get to the basket to get his buckets, it doesn't help to have a center down there all the time who really can't move out. So maybe they would be inclined to trade him and build around Ben Simmons. Yeah, but also then you look at Embiid's fit on the Warriors, it would obviously – it would take some getting used to because he 
for it's not like he's just a rebounder and a guy who catches lobs. He commands offensive touches, you know? And he would get them. I mean, Clay's really a shooter. Clay doesn't need the ball more. And I don't think he commands more touches than Kevin Durant does. And they were pretty yeah. successful with him. Yeah. And I think that he's a perfect thing, Golden State, because they're not really big. Obviously, every team drives, but they play a lot of their game on the perimeter. So you get Steph, Clay, and possibly if they could keep Wiggins or Draymond, you get them on the outside and beat in the middle. That's a lethal offense. Yeah, and it's also about what you have to give up. It depends where you're at at the lottery. I mean, obviously the Warriors tank, if you want to call it that. I mean, yeah. it was kind of, I would call it unintentional tank. Yeah, they were just bad. Uh, from, the first, from the first couple of days, it was obvious of the season, it was obvious that they couldn't uh, hang around in the West. But for me, it comes down to what you have, where you go in the lottery. Because if you go one overall, I, I, I would hate getting, giving away the number one overall pick. I think there's uh, – I mean, this draft, I feel like by this time of the year, obviously everything's complicated by the pandemic and the fact that we didn't really get to see a March Madness and we didn't get to see the finish season out. But I feel like usually there's a consensus number one overall pick at least. And we don't really know that right now. And, you know, I think the Warriors go center in the lottery. And there are three guys. You got the uh, Wiseman, obviously. We don't know a ton about him because we barely got to see him in college because of some ridiculous uh, moves by the NCAA. Yeah. And then we have uh, Okongu from USC, who I really like. He really yeah. up for the Trojans. And then you have Obi Toppin, who obviously led Dayton's that historic season. So if they want a big, it seems like wherever they fall in the lottery, they'll be in range for one. Well, I think one thing that's interesting about this draft and why it doesn't really benefit the Golden State Warriors that much is there, as theirs seems like these are really talented guys, but they're raw talents, even LaMelo Ball who a lot of people like, who is playing overseas. And Wiseman, Toppin, and um, what, I can't pronounce his name from USC. Um, they're a lot – they're really, really talented guys. If you watch them play, they have a lot of upside, but they're definitely raw talented. Golden State, as I know that they have a bunch of years left, but Steph, Clay, and Draymond are definitely getting up there, and they want to win now. They want to continue that dynasty. So I don't know if it's the right move to wait for a guy like that to develop and kind of focus on getting your championships while you can. Yeah. I mean, it. Does, you're right. I think that it could be a situation where you don't want to really work with this, this center developing, but I don't know if the Warriors feel the need to have a dominant center because the center is always in the position that they kind of let uh, a non-star have, you know, it's always been a JaVale McGee or a Zaza and they've been fine with that. They like a toughness there. They just they don't necessarily need a guy who's going to do a million things for you. Obviously, they had Boogie Cousins last year, but we didn't really get to see a ton of that. And I think that they could – It would. I think that Golden State – you know, it's crazy, but the guys that they have on that roster now, for the most part, besides Wiggins, they're all homegrown talents. And I think the Warriors believe in themselves to develop talent because they've done it in, in uh, time and time again. So I'd, I personally think that their move could be to draft one of those centers and mold him into a really great center around such a potent lineup. But I think a team like Golden State, and we're talking about them, they're playing to win a championship. That's going to be their goal. I mean, their goal is not going to be to get to the Western Conference Finals. It's not going to be to make the playoffs. It's not even going to be to get to the finals. They want to win the finals. They want to put another ring on their fingers. So you got to really ask yourself, is that team with Draymond Green, Steph Clay, and Weissman or Toppin and Wiggins, 
Is that team good enough to beat one of the Lakers or Clippers that we just talked about? Do we think that? Do they think that? Or do they think they have to make a move with those picks? And that's what it really boils down to. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think that's where we're going to end it there because they just do – it's going to be fascinating to see what they do this offseason. Obviously, like you said, the lottery picks, the return of some stars. It's going to – the Golden State Warriors are definitely a team to watch coming into the 2020-2021 season. But to uh, move on to our NFL coverage, we are back playing the game that we enjoy so much, and that's the uh, over-under game. And we're starting with uh, NFC East – NFC – an AFC East team, uh, the uh, wild. They made the wild card game last year, and uh, they are the Buffalo Bills, ten and six last year, and they are listed at nine wins. So, uh, Jake, what do you think about this? I think either way, it's getting very close to nine wins. I don't think they're a twelve win team. I don't think they're a four or five win team. But if I had to pick, I think I would go under nine wins for them. And I think that that's probably controversial. A lot of people are loving them. They know they've gotten a lot of love this offseason, picking up Stefan Diggs. But I just, you look at that schedule, and I just don't know if they're going to be able to get to 10 wins. I think I have them at 9 and 7, 8 and 8 in my book, because I just don't know. You have to play that miserable division of Seattle, San Francisco, Arizona, and the Rams. So that's really tough. And then they also got to play Kansas City. And I just don't think that they're even going to be able to go 5-1, and 6-0 in that week AFC East as New England always plays them tough. Obviously, it's a new-look New England team. And the Jets and Miami always play them tough. So we're really going to see what's going to happen there. But what I think that really is their biggest limiting factor, and I think this got exposed in their wildcard playoff game, is Josh Allen. And I love Josh Allen. I think he's a future star in this league. But I think that their schedule proves that they're going to be playing a lot of close games. And I just don't know if he's ready to handle those close games yet as he made a lot of mental mistakes in the fourth quarter and overtime of that playoff game. And I think that those, those, that might come back to haunt him this season in some of those closer games. Yeah, and I think the schedule is a valid point. I mean, it's going to be tough to get to the 10 wins. And I think when I first saw the win total at nine, I was like, that, that seems low what 10 and 6 this year and really didn't lose much and gained a good amount of players uh during the offseason then I saw the schedule and I said okay that's a that's a fair thing that's a fair over under but as tough as the schedule is I think this is really going to be a good year for the Buffalo Bills and it's about time for for the Bills Mafia to have a team that's straight up dominant it's been a while and first point uh Josh Allen um, I think that when you have a guy like Josh Allen, he's obviously such a good pure athlete. His he continues to need he continues he needs to continue to be polished. And the thing for me is they keep on doing what he need. The Bills keep on doing things that allow him to develop. I mean, watching Josh Allen in 2018 and watching Josh Allen in 2019, it was it was a completely different experience. Josh Allen in 2018 was uh, a nervous rookie. He threw more picks than touchdowns. He was fleeing the pocket way too much. And on a bad team, because that Buffalo team two years ago almost came into the season a similar way as like the uh, as the Dolphins did this year. You know, nobody expected him to do anything. Yeah. He ended up going five and six as the starter as a rookie, which kind of, although the stats didn't show it, it kind of showed me something in terms yeah. of who he is as a player and that he's a really tough as nails guy. And then this year he – Everything jumped. The touchdowns jumped. The interceptions fell. 
the uh, completion percentage rose. And was he by any means the uh, perfect quarterback? Absolutely not. He still was completing under 60% of his passes. He needs, he needs a lot of refinement. Yeah. But I think what they did this year, the offensive line is looking better. They have a lot of depth there. Obviously, you give him Stephon Diggs. You have, now you have a legit wide receiver core. you got him, John Brown, Cole Beasley. He has weapons. Devin Singletary had a great rookie year. I just think there's so much development around him that he can't help but develop. And that's not even factoring in the fact yeah. that I think he has so much room to grow. Yeah, I think this team's a really talented team. And I think other than maybe the Kansas City game, they could run with any team in the NFL. But I just don't know if Josh Allen is going to be able to handle those big drives in the fourth quarter. Because if you look at the schedule, you, it's easy to see that a lot of those games are going to come down and be dog fights where he's going to have to make a play late in the game. Uh-huh. And can he do that? And I think the last time we saw him, that last taste that he left in our mouth was him throwing that crazy lateral pass in overtime that nearly kind of ended their season and it later did get intercepted. So I think that there's definitely a lot of flaws in his game, and I just don't know if that's ever going to go away, and I don't know if it's going to go away this year. But to judge him on one on his first playoff performance, to say how he's going to do in the regular season the next year, I mean, I think it'll be good. It'll probably be a good thing for him that that happened. He had a huge opportunity. He felt flat on his face. And now he's going to learn from that, you know. I don't think it'll haunt him. I think you look at the, the type of person that Josh Allen is. He's an aggressive player. He's always looking for the extra yard on the runs, which could end up an injury. Yeah. We won't talk about that right yeah. now because that will hurt my point. But just a guy that is uh, very focused on improving. And I think that ha- even though it was a terrible experience, having that playoff experience will suit him very well in the yeah. future. Well, I think another thing, if we're talking about Josh Allen, and this was the biggest knock on him coming out of Montana, was his completion percentage. That was a really scary number, and I think that that's still a problem that's trended with him towards the NFL. He's really struggled this year. He was down below 65% completion percentage, and that's not something that you want in your quarterback, and that's something that he's carried with him for a long time, and if that'll ever go away. I think you look at Tom Brady as the greatest quarterback ever. His completion percentage numbers are great. And I'm not saying Josh Allen has to get there because he does a lot of things that Tom Brady couldn't in with his legs. But I think that he's got to complete a higher percentage of his passes if he wants to be a successful quarterback in this league. Well, that's why I think that the issue, the thing with Josh Allen and why I like the Bills to go over is because we saw I saw what the Bills did last year to go 10-6. and six, And I just think Josh Allen's going to be even better this year because – like you said, coming out of Wyoming, there were a lot of issues. There was the completion percentage. There was a lot of things, and I don't think he got polished there. It was, it was for me, a lot similar to a guy like uh, Jordan, to, uh, not, yeah, to Jordan Love, where he had a good season, then he had a rough senior year, then you were, had questions about who he was and if he, was, if, how, if he couldn't do it in the Mountain West, how could he do it in the NFL? And then he comes in. And he's constantly improving. And I just think – I think Josh Allen is at half of what he can be. And I think he's going to make a lot of ground this year. And if he can start to complete those balls, it's just a lot of correctable stuff. And I think that he's, he's – he can correct it. And I think that a lot of the things that he messed up on in his career so far are fixable. And I think that he has the talent to really overcome a lot of his obstacles. Well- here's what I think about the Bills, and I really do like them, and I think that they're going to be a playoff team this year. 
But I think they're very, very similar to the team they were last year. I don't think they got – they definitely didn't get worse, but I don't think they got drastically better, and they went 10-6. and six. And I think the schedule this year is a lot harder because last year they got the NFC East. They had the Giants, the Redskins, the Dallas, and Eagles. And now instead of that, they have as with that tough division that I talked about before, the NFC West. So I think that that's probably going to translate to one or two more losses on their – resume which just is why i'm going below nine for them yeah but where i'm i think we're we're differing is that i think you're looking at buffalo bills versus elite teams when i see that on the schedule i'm seeing elite team versus elite team because i think this is the year that the buffalo bills become an elite nfl team i think that they have this division for a couple of years i think that obviously we don't the afc east is such question mark because we have the, the patriots we don't know what's up with them the Jets have a ton of talent. Miami, who knows with them? But I think that right now the Bills have a strong, a strong hold on that division right now. Yeah, and that's where I disagree with you. I just think I think they're great, but I still think they're outside of that Super Bowl bubble of those elite teams. I think they're very, very good, but I don't know if I'd put them in elite yet. I think Josh Allen has to come out and prove it this year if they yeah. want to be considered elite. And but even if they're not elite, if that's a jump. We can at least I can I think we can at least agree that the offense wasn't good last year per se. I mean, Josh Allen had a solid year, but there are just places for them to improve. I think Stefan Diggs really will help. Yeah, absolutely. This team was twenty third in points. They were twenty fourth in yards. I mean, this has been similar to what I've been saying for a bunch of teams. They're just when you have low rankings like that, you're probably going to go up. So then what's the what's kind of like the scale? Something's going up, something's going down. So for the defense, which is so good last year, I mean, they were second in points, they were third in yards allowed. But the reason I don't think you see regression from them is because they weren't forcing like an uncanny amount of turnovers. That's where you always see with defense when yeah. have worse years. The Bills were, I think, towards the, like, maybe 10th or 11th. So it's not like, they were forcing 40 turnovers last season, and that's why the defense was good. The defense was great because they just got stopped. Yeah, I, I, I love that defense. I'm not going to – I can't say anything bad about that defense. I think Tredavious White is the second-best corner in the league behind Stephon Gilmore. I really love that defense. I think they have a good front seven, and the offense is just the thing that worries me about them, and I wonder how much Stephon Diggs can really affect that. Yeah. The offense will be a work in progress, but I, I just like the in, the internal improvement. The schedule's tough. I think they're 10-16 with potential to uh, maybe 11-5 and 12-4 and really, if they get if they get it. Yeah. So um, we talked an AFC team, and the AFC East is playing the NFC West, so uh, talk about and we're talking about the Arizona Cardinals. So, uh, Jake, the Arizona Cardinals have are listed at 7.5 on that over-under. And uh, how are you feeling about Arizona this season? I like them. I like the DeAndre Hopkins move. I don't think there's many people who does. And I think Kyler Murray is going to be a lot better this year. 
But I just think that, as I said, the same thing with the Bills, I think having to play those three teams in that division is really, really a big challenge. So I have them at six and 10, seven and nine. I got them going under. I think they get better. And I think they're definitely a team of the future. I think we're going to see them play in January in the coming years. But I just don't know about this year if they're ready there yet. I think they're still a year or two away. I mean, why I'm going over is a combination of things. And I'll start on the offensive side of the ball. This offense is air rate. This is like a Cliff Kingsbury has been having uh, uh, probably the most fun during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic out of all of us because he's just thinking about all the ways that his offense is going to light it up next season. I mean, first of all, they were a they were middle of the pack offense this year, a lot of room for improvement, but this was the first – Kyler Murray really started to get comfortable towards the middle of the season. I, was, I thought he was going to have a tougher time this first year, to be honest, especially with the, uh, off, the lack of offensive line that, that, that was present that he had because, you know, you saw what happened with Josh Rosen the year before. But he really was – his mobility was on, uh, was on point. He could really – I think his arm strength surprised a lot of people. And then you, the things that they did midseason – Getting Kenyon Drake, Kenyon Drake was undervalued so much in his time in Miami. And then you have him come to Arizona, and he was crazy in Arizona. In eight games, he had 640 yards rushing on pace for like 1,200 yards on the season if he was there the whole year, 5.2 yards per game, I mean, per carry. And then, like we said, we know that they got DeAndre Hopkins, and DeAndre Hopkins had 100 – uh, over 100 catches and over 1,000 yards, and it was definitely kind of a down year for him. So <laughs> it's just going to be a lot yeah. of points on the board, I yeah. think. Uh, I think – but I think that they're a good offense. They're not a great offense. I don't think with looking at offenses like the Chiefs and the Saints, I don't think you could put them in that category. I think they're a good offense. And I just – I don't know about their defense. I really don't trust their defense. I don't know if they're going to be able to shut teams down. And I just think I love Kyler Murray. I really do. I loved him coming in. I thought that was a great job taking him first overall. But I just think he has a ceiling on him. I don't think he's ever been able to pick apart defenses like a great NFL quarterback can. I think the size really scares me about him. I love his mobility. I think that really helps. You need that in a quarterback now. But I just think that this team doesn't really have the guys to be a great team, and they don't have the defense to be a great team and even get to that 8-8, eight and 9-7 eight, and seven playoff contention area. But are we going to pretend like a quarterback size matters that much anymore? Uh, he's a little guy. He's a he's little. Like I like he's what five ten maybe five eleven. Like I get six foot six one six two. But then when you're below six feet, like I think that that's a little bit alarming to me. Like even watching him out there, he looks small, and I don't see that in. Baker and Drew Brees and Russell Wilson. But when I see Kyler Murray, I'm thinking, yeah, that guy looks kind of small. But what I'm seeing is a guy who's small but uses – the issue might be he gets crowded. He can get – he can throw on the run. He can throw bombs. I'm telling you, I remember watching the first game of the season, uh, and it was uh, Lions-Cardinals, and they were down like 20, 23 to 6 in the fourth 24-6, yeah. And he made some crazy throws to get them back in. And ever since I saw that fourth quarter, I've been in on Kyler Murray because I just think – you know, you looked at him in college and you thought he might come in and rely on his legs. His legs were used, but it was more in the pocket than out. That's something that they can expand on. And then you give him 
three guy, three receivers who are really, really good players. You still have Larry Fitzgerald doing it incredibly <laughs> at, at his age. Crazy. The ageless wonder. The ageless wonder. Christian Kirk, I really like. And then I like now, Christian Kirk. Now to have DeAndre Hopkins round out that group, that's an elite weapon group for Kyler. No, I see what you're saying. I just – I think that he definitely can use his legs, and I think he doesn't use them too much. He stays in the pocket, which I really like, and I think he could definitely push the ball down the field. That was shown by his days at Oklahoma. But I just don't know how much he can really be like throw those check downs, how much of a guy is he going to be on second and third and four when he needs to hit a slant or an out route. That's what really worries me about him. Can he do that like the Bradys and the Breezes? But I think the air raid kind of covers up those problems because – you could say Kyler Murray is kind of more of a college quarterback than an NFL quarterback, but he's playing in a college offense. You know? Yeah, and how far, but how far can that get them? How far can that college offense get them? I think it could get them to 9-7 and seven this year. I don't know. I think if you threw them in the AFC East, it could get them to 9-7, and seven, but in the NFC West, I do not see them getting over six or seven wins. Listen, it's a tough division, and the defense is a huge, is a, was probably one of the worst in football this year. But I like – it's going to sound crazy, but the Arizona Cardinals have an up-and-coming defense because, first of all, you do. there are some guys that you have from last year who are studs. Chandler Jones, this guy, uh, you know, I'm wearing my Syracuse shirt today. He's a Syracuse product, and um, he's consistently been one of the best pass rushers in football and has really not gotten the recognition that he deserves. He was uh, – he was uh, – he was a defensive player of the year finalist this year, 19 sacks. But the issue there was he had 19 sacks. I don't think anybody else had over five. <laughs> the only other guy might have I don't think the rest of them combined lost. had over five. What did you say? I don't think they all had five combined. Combined, yeah, yeah, exactly. But they got some help. They got Devon Kennard from uh, the Lions, who's a solid pass rusher. They got Jordan Phillips, who was a big key for the Buffalo Bills that I'm a little bit worried about on that pick that they lost him. He had 10 sacks last year for the Bills from the inside. And then the linebacking core has the opportunity to be really, really dynamic because you have Jordan Hicks. If you remember him from Philadelphia, I believe yeah. he was on that uh, Super Bowl winning team. He was a key piece to that team. And he had a great year last year. He was a pro bowler. Then you bring in uh, Devondre Campbell from Atlanta, who's another solid piece. He had 130 tackles, three forced fumbles, two picks. But then Isaiah Simmons, they grabbed him at eight, a guy who was one of, in my opinion, probably the second or third best player in this draft. And I just think there's going to be a lot of improvement on that side of the football. I, I love Isaiah Simmons, and I love Chandler Jones. I think that that's going to be a lethal duo on defense. But I just – I'm not really sold on the rest of that team, and I think Isaiah Simmons is going to come in and be really good. But I just don't know – I think they're definitely up and coming, and I just think that this year is going to be another year of rebuilding for them. And I think that in the coming years, with that Kyler Murray Hopkins and all those guys they have on offense in the, and these young guys on defense, they're going to be successful. I just think – and I think it's reality for them. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be tough for them. I just – I think there are just so many talented guys on this team. Just before we uh, move off the defense – Butta Baker is another guy who I really love. He was a pro bowler last year, and he's still Patrick Peterson. But yeah. Where I think I just 
it's a tough over-under. It's a tough one to call. I thought their over-under was going to be more like six, to be honest. They gave them seven and a half in Vegas, which is surprising. Yeah. But I just think that whether or not this team is a playoff team, I'm not sure. But I wouldn't be surprised. I'm sure they're not. But I'm, sure, I'm excited for week one. And they play the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, I don't know how many people will be watching it because it will be at the same time as the uh, Brady-Breeze matchup. <laughs> I'm so excited because I think that the uh, Cardinals are going to set a statement that game. You can record me now, and they're going to win that game, and people are going to be afraid of the Cardinals after week one. I don't know. But I'm definitely excited to watch them, though. I think that watching Murray and Hopkins, I'm excited to watch them. I think they're going to be a fun team. I just don't know how successful they'll be. It's just they're just so there are so many good teams in the NFL right now, and especially the NFC. Now more than ever, we don't really have. I just feel like there are traditional doormats, if you will, and then you have these teams that are all improving. Everybody's making chess moves, and then you have some people playing uh, checkers for kids. Shout out to Bill O'Brien, but um, <laughs> you know, I think that it's going to be such a great season in the NFL. Mm-hmm. But a. a a league that is ha- trying to have a season at all is Major League Baseball. Obviously, the MLB in terms of uh, playing really was most likely hit the hardest by the COVID-19 pandemic is they were getting ready for opening day when everything shut down. They were in the middle of spring training when everything ended. And they are probably the league that is most likely to come back quick, uh, the quickest just because In baseball, you have less contact. It's easier to social distance, if you will. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be 100%, but baseball is one of the safer sports, I'd say, just Mm -hmm. in terms of a major league, uh, one of our leagues coming back, one of the four major sports. But um, this week, uh, there was a major bump in the road that could prevent baseball from being played based on the MLBPA's opinion. So just to uh, go into it a little bit, the Guardian uh, was quoted saying, this week MLB owners approved a plan that would pay the players a percentage of their 2020 salaries based on a 50-50 split between players and owners of MLB's revenue from the regular season and postseason, and that is a non-starter for the players' union, which refused to agree any deal that they feel represents a salary cap. So just to preface it a little bit, because I know when I looked into this issue, I really was confused because just, you know, the numbers, not a big numbers guy myself. Yeah. um, So basically the issue is here. So because they're trying to play an 82 game season, that's the goal right now. The players already agreed to have their salary based on the amount of games they played. So let's say you're getting paid a hundred, a million dollars for this season. You're on a one year, $1 million contract. You play 81 games, you're getting 500,000. But now what the new proposal from the owners is, not only are you taking not only are the players taking that pay cut, but they're also getting a 50-50 split on revenue, which would cut their salaries even more. Because the MLB is the only league of the major four sports that doesn't have revenue splitting. So it's a, a thing where not only the players took the initial pay cut, now they're getting asked to have another pay cut, and they're really not happy with that. So honestly. I mean, I thought the statement that was really interesting, I believe it was Blake Snell, who's a really successful pitcher, said that he's not taking – they can't take any of his money. He doesn't want to take a pay cut. He said, they can't touch my money. 
And really, when it boils down to it, I don't have such a – and Bryce Harper, who's the face of the MLB, agree with this, that I don't want any of my money being taken. So I honestly don't have such a problem with them saying – them believing this, but I just really didn't like in the middle of a pandemic when so many people are struggling financially, these guys can't take a million dollars off to get their league going. That's really what rubbed me the wrong way. And he's going to come out and be so sensitive insensitive and say i'm not taking any of my you can't take any of my money you can't touch my money i really that just rubbed me the wrong way see and the concerns i think obviously are about the money but it's also about the safety and if the play if blake snell instead of coming out saying i gotta get my money i'm not playing i guess my unless i get mine okay like the way he sounded just obnoxious sensitive and obnoxious you're right and then you have a real person, not a real person, obviously, Wayne Snell's a real person, but you have a player with a concern that goes much more than money, a guy like Sean Doolittle. He's a reliever for the um, Washington Nationals, and his wife has asthma. So that puts her at risk for COVID-19. And he said something like, uh, he said any agreement needs a proactive health plan focused on prevention and reactive plan aimed at containment. So you have one guy like Blake Snell who's making the players look bad, because he makes a statement that just sounds so money-driven and so selfish. But then you have a guy like Sean Doolittle whose comment, because it was more rational, it didn't get the airtime that the Blake Snell comment got. But that's what the important thing should be here. I think absolutely. if you have – obviously the money thing needs to be dealt with. And if, the, if that – there's no salary cap in baseball. And if that revenue split represents a salary cap, which is what the MLBPA feels – then maybe that's not fair. But I think that in this time, sports represent a, a thing of normalcy, you know? Yeah. All of American life is flipped upside down. And then you have an opportunity as a player. Obviously, you might not be making as much money as you are, but you have an opportunity to put some of the country on your back. And if you're the first sport to open in the MLB, that will be so huge for the players of the MLB, for the, for the yeah. MLB. Especially because the MLB is kind of the dying art as the mm-hmm. ratings are really down over the past few years. So for them to get the opportunity to open back up first, I know a lot of people who aren't baseball fans would watch baseball just to watch something. So I think that that's a huge thing. And I don't even really have a problem with Blake Snell believing that, as I said before. But mm-hmm. for him to come out and say that right now in the midst of all the issues yeah. we're having, it's just unnecessary. Like, believe what you want, but to come out and say that, just such a bad look for you and your organization, I just, it rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, and to say that I think the players should get a pay cut, I don't know if I agree with this revenue sharing deal, because this is saving, it's like, okay, the players aren't, the millionaires aren't getting their money, but that means that the billionaires are getting their money. And yeah, which is true. And the owners, you know, it's almost like, we know who the players are. We know their exact salaries, and we know that they make a ton of money. So it's easiest for us to point at the players and say, "Oh, you're selfish. You're because you're not because you're trying to get your money." But what I think fans sometimes don't realize is that there are owners behind these players that make a ton more than the players. And because not every fan knows every owner, we don't know the net worth of the owner. We don't know yeah. how. We don't realize how exorbit- exorbitantly rich that these people are that we sometimes side with the owners, not realizing that they're being selfish too. 
and you know, but the owners are the guys who are taking care of the stadium staff and the concession stands and paying all the expenses. And I know they're coming away making more money than any player, but they're also the same people who are going to be using that money to take care of their employees. The players have no employees that they have to take care of who have been out of work for the past yeah. few months and who have been having to pay their salaries. So I think that's another thing, though, that we can't really hate on the owners for. Yeah, but I just think in this sense – you know, the owners are trying to take away from the players' revenue in bad times, but you don't see when things are going well, the players giving the, own, the owners giving the players more money. And I just think it's important to point out, well, well, well nah, I don't know about that. When the, league, when the league goes up, the revenues go up. The NBA's grown so much in the past few years, that's why the guys have been getting bigger salaries. So I think that as the league grows, the salary cap in other sports grows and the market price goes up as the well, league that's grows. That's baseball different because there isn't a salary cap. Yeah. And the, the thing is, I think the, the um, relationship between the Players Association in baseball and the MLB, Rob Manford, who's the commissioner, they have a rough relationship. Tony yeah. Clark runs the MLBPA. They, just, they, they aren't fans of each other. In the last couple of years, not as much this offseason, but especially in the last two offseasons, you had a lot of players being unsigned, a lot of guys getting – Yeah, going late, unsigned, and late into the offseason. There, there's just been a really – there's been a really uh, – a, a lot of disagreement between players and owners. So this is almost just like another issue where players don't want to concede to the owners because they think the owners have to advantage. If you were in a situation like the NBA is, where the players, obviously there are some things that you have to hammer out for an NBA return. The NBA players are in, are in solid standing with the owners. Yes. We want to return. All the top NBA guys took yeah. pay cuts or said they're open to it, and they all say they want to return at whatever cost. And I think that's why the NBA is rising and the MLB is falling. Because the MLB has had that relationship between the players and the owners hasn't been good. And when you have something like this, it's just bad for the league. It doesn't look good. And if baseball wants to grow, the players looking greedy and the owners looking even greedier is not a way to do that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, that's all the time we had today. We thank you so much for joining us. We had a great time, and we'll see you next week.